I am so sorry about last night. It was a nightmare in every way. But together, you and I will laugh at last night someday. Ice cream. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, August 13th, 2017. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, uh, good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning from Maine. Maine, have, Rich. Uh, yep. Maine is the main thing. Excellent. You have worked out uh, an ability to um, join us (laughs) from Maine, which is awesome. I'm so glad that you're able to uh, take a break from your little uh, voyage up there. Are you doing anything theater related? I wish I could. You know, I was tempted last night to go to this high school production of The Wizard of Oz, but you have to draw the line somewhere. So uh, (laughs) I'm also here with two high school friends. So, I mean, to ask them to go to that is just well beyond. Yeah. So so no is the answer to the question. (laughs) Well, enjoy it. I hope you're having beautiful weather up there. I just want to say I totally disagree that you have to draw the line somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I rarely do, Michael. I rarely do. (laughs) Not when it comes to seeing theater, no. Uh, I've I've had to draw the line at um, children's productions of uh, of Annie. Uh, ah. just, we, you know, it's only and I love Annie, and I've done mm-hmm. a handful of productions of Annie. I, it's a great show, but you do have to draw the line for me at least. <laughs> the other voice that you heard is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist whose work appears at Talk and Broadway, Everything Sondheim, and Broadway Stars. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Morning. And I, I, was it last week you were at the Jersey Shore? Yes, and um, I, I could not find anything theatrical uh, there. So. Oh, I'm sure there was lots of things theatrical. <laughs> in a larger sense, James, yeah. Uh, you know, maybe not, you know, a legit show as they might term it in variety but uh theatrical um which brings us to our first discussion there's a new show on broadway is it really a broadway show or not but we'll talk about that michael moore uh, broadway debut in the terms of my surrender where he has written and starred in it uh it's down at the belasco and michael and peter got a chance to see it so uh peter why don't you start us off with that well, I'm not sure that Bette Midler got more applause uh, than Michael Moore did when he <laughs> entered uh, the performance I saw. Uh, so he's really uh, has his audience in place, no question about that. I adore Michael Moore. I think he's uh, magnificent. I really appreciated his TV series when it was on, and uh, I've seen most of his movies. So this was a big thrill for me to get to uh, see him uh, live. Uh, I did run into him once on 
Eighth uh, Avenue and uh, 50th Street when there used to be a payphone there. Uh, he was he was just getting off a payphone. And I told him how much I enjoyed his TV show, and I have to say he beamed like a child. He was it was as if he never got a compliment in his life. <laughs> so as a result, you know, I'm I'm a Michael Moore fan. You know, so so my heart sank at the beginning when a stand-up microphone uh, made its way onto the stage and. Um, Moore made his entrance and, um, and there was a stage filling backdrop um, of an American flag, but projected on it was Donald Trump. And I thought, oh, no, is that microphone going to stay in place all night? And he's just going to stand there. Oh, my God. Are we going to have to look at Donald Trump all night? Oh, my God. Did, you know, <laughs> you know, so, no, there are production values to the show. I don't mean it's, you know, the Phantom of the Opera, but there are production values. And if you look close, for whatever reason, when he drinks coffee, he's drinking out of a Mamma Mia mug. I mean, <laughs> So anyway, I happened to notice that. But anyway, thank God um, he moves away from the stand-up microphone, and he does have conventional um, amplification. So he does move around the stage, and it isn't just like a, a nightclub. Um, and, and that's good, too, because I don't know if you feel this way, but I really feel when you're, when you're talking to a stand-up microphone, it obscures part of your mouth, and it's sort of harder to understand what's going on. So anyway, um, there's a bit of audience participation, too, in which he brings people up from the audience and um, tries to prove a point. Uh, the point he tried to make um, was proved the day I was there. But um, <laughs> but it's mostly a political show, needless to say, and it deals with the fact that um, – we, uh, he said in the last seven elections, uh, uh, seven of the last eight elections, our side, and it's interesting, he says our side, which indicates he really believes his audience comes in uh, wanting to uh, hear what uh, he has to say and believe what he has to say, um, that we are in the majority and we have no power. How did we let this happen? It's almost as if um, he's inciting us to riot. He jokes about that, but uh, you know, one has to wonder how much he's joking. Now, you might assume that he started writing the script sometime after the morning of November 9th uh, last year because um, he was mobilized to action after Trump won. But what we have to remember is that back in July of last year, he was predicting that Trump would win. Uh, he really felt that was going to happen, even though statistics were showing, the polls were showing that indeed Hillary Clinton was going to win in a walk. I mean, it just uh, – but he saw it coming. So as a result, this is a guy that's worth paying attention to. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the statistics are really shocking. I didn't realize that 53 percent of white women – voted for Trump. I mean, that's that's pretty astonishing considering the fact that he um, was known as, um, yes. uh, let's be euphemistic, a vagina grabber. So, um, um, but there were so many pungent lines in the show, like Trump knew this America because he helped to create it. You know, um, the statistic that 60% of Americans wouldn't be able to afford a plane ticket if they had to attend a faraway funeral. So there's a lot of stuff like that that really... Um, the really is very potent. And what I also found interesting, I said there's a, a backdrop of the American flag. And at one point, news uh, comes across like in a ribbon in Times Square, that building on 42nd Street, right where 7th and Broadway uh, meet. Um, a ribbon of information goes and things that had happened that morning were on that ribbon. So I imagine if you go to um, a, a show Today, tomorrow, you're going to see about Charlottesville on that backdrop. So um, he's really up uh, on what's going on there. Um, he's often very funny in things that don't have to do with politics. Um, I, what really 
got the biggest laugh from the crowd was when he talked about the 59 things you cannot bring on an airplane. It's that many now. And uh, some of them, uh, you do say, uh, duh, that type of thing. But what's really inspirational is uh, his talking about how he got started, that when he was 17 years old, mm. he decided to run for office and um, and won. And, you know, frankly, I remember that happening, but I didn't know it was he. I remember reading at the time that a 17-year-old kid um, wound up uh, winning an election and being on a, a certain council. But school, to find was out this, a, uh, school board, wasn't it? Is that what it was? Yeah, um, I believe so. So um, anyway, it, it was just amazing to, to – uh, put the the name in the face with that incident because I remember what had happened. But the real message of the show uh, is something that Jerry Herman taught us back in um, 1968-69 season, that one person can change the world. And he gives very specific instances of how he and a New Jersey librarian um, essentially changed the world. And uh, that's what really is most potent about uh, this show, that Many of us go out there saying, okay, maybe we can do that. And considering that the Belasco Theater has about 1,100, 900, 1,000, 1,100 people, I don't know what the capacity is, but wouldn't it be something if every person who went to see this show eight times a week, that's about, you know, let's say seven, eight, nine thousand 9,000 people, wouldn't it be something if every one of them was determined to change the world? And uh, maybe we'd be in better shape if indeed that happened. And I'm hoping that he's inspired people to uh, to do to mobilize because, uh, needless to say, boy, do we need it now. So uh, there's that quote, uh, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Michael... What, what was your take on Michael Moore's show? Yeah, that was a great – that's a great quote and his point about uh, one person being able to make an enormous difference in the right circumstances is – it really was illustrated with several examples. Uh, Rosa Parks was another one mm, that he mentioned, mm. but that's the one that everyone knows. But the story about the librarian, um, I, if I could try to – really summarize it, um, Moore had wrote a book called, um, what's the title? Stupid White Men and Other Excuses for the State of the Nation. And I guess it was printed uh, you know, and about to be published. And then the, the uh, publishers got very scary. Apparently, the, um, at the time, the, the publishing house was owned by Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> um, and so they were going to they told him that they were going to pulp the entire original print run and, and not even send the book to stores. And then Moore was speaking somewhere and he mentioned this and this librarian from, wasn't it New Jersey? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, was in the audience. Englewood, in fact. Englewood, for those of but, us who uh, who know New Jersey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes. Uh, she um, was outraged, of course, and she started a, a little thing among her librarian friends. And then it just snowballed to the point where the book was published and then it was published and then it had it became a huge hit and had several, several reprintings. Uh, so assuming that that story is accurate and I have no reason to think otherwise, it, it really is quite amazing what one person can do and and it is important for all of us to remember that um 
I I was impressed by how theatrical the show was. The uh, this basic set of this huge American flag uh, by David Rockwell uh, is very malleable um, in terms of the way it lights up and the projections uh, that, that are projected upon it. Uh, projections and video designed by Andrew Lazaro. Um, and the lighting and the sound. Uh, the, there is a director here, and it's Michael Mayer, who certainly has many theater credits. And uh, in addition to that basic set, then there are um, little carts that roll on with uh, little places for him to sit and, and a, I believe, a desk with books on it. And then there is this mock game show that <laughs> Peter um, referred to, uh, and that has a you know the usual game show uh accoutrements of the like i guess the podium that the the uh <laughs> the, the 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 person running the show stands behind and the two uh the two podia podia that the <laughs> contestants stand behind and, and you know buzz in with the and i don't mind i, I don't know if uh, peter avoided it because he thought it was a spoiler but the basic um uh concept of this game show is to prove that the uh, stupidest Canadian in the audience is still smarter than the smartest American. And it's interesting. Um, it, it, I mean, it, it really seems clear that the, neither of these people are plants. And the night I went, um, both of them uh, worked out really well. But someone just recently reported that on another night that it did not go so well because it's obviously – you know, I don't know what he does when he when he picks the wrong person or two wrong people. Um, I guess maybe he just tries to cut it short. Uh, it's it seems very very risky, and I admire him on the one hand, but but I hate to be him <laughs> when yeah. it uh, when it doesn't go well. Um, so anyway, uh, that that is that that one section, and it is very creative. And believe it or not, on the night I attended, uh, the American actually won by one point. Oh, yeah, uh, but she was um, very involved in the, I, I think the DNC or, or just the. the I the, see. So she she had a lot of knowledge that maybe the average person wouldn't have. Um, the uh, I I think it, it is. Um, as I said in my – I reviewed the show for Talking Broadway and uh, you know, people have said that it, this is a case of preaching to the converted or preaching to the choir. And certainly if you look at the – if the, the, the 2016 uh, electoral map for New York City, it's, it's a, it absolutely incredible. I think we may have mentioned this before somehow, uh, but it's this sea of beautiful blue with a few ugly splotches of blood red um except for staten island which is the opposite and i'm not going to get into that uh Uh. but um you know but but the location is is only a a small part of it because he could do this show um in the in the reddest city in the reddest state in the union uh where it would i guess the message would be more effectively heard uh, because people need to hear it more. But what would that matter if nobody bought tickets? So, uh, you know, so either way you look at it, I'm, I'm glad he's here and I'm glad he's on Broadway. And interestingly enough, I, um, you know, he is a, a polarizing figure, even within the left. I think I, I, I saw a friend the other night, um, a, a friend in the theater industry who I know to be a, um, you know, a, a rabid Hillary supporter and uh, very much on the left. And I said, have you seen Michael Moore's show? And this person made this face and said, oh, oh no, I'm not going to that. I said, 
oh, really? Um, he he I, I, he said, yeah. Oh, I think he's a douchebag. I said, mm. oh. I said, well, um, well then, I, you know, I said I'm surprised, but I imagine what you're saying is that you're with him on the issues, but you just don't like his approach. And he said, yeah. Well, you put it a lot better than I could, but yes, that's mm. It. Mm. so. I, I don't know. Some people claim that his facts are not all correct. Uh. I don't. I, I, you know, I, I wish they would be more specific. Um, so I, I'm going to ask people to be more specific when and if I hear that again, because I don't know. This story, oh, for me, um, I, I can hardly even talk about it because it's so, mm. so enraging mm. yeah. and so saddening, the, the story yeah. of the poisoning of the water in Flint, Michigan. Mm-hmm. And if it is as he tells it, yeah. it, that governor should not only not be in office anymore, but should be in jail for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I, I don't, I, I know there was a quote unquote investigation and I believe uh, the, the, uh, the way that ended was that it was decided that he, uh, he didn't know for sure that this would happen. So therefore he wasn't liable, but I, 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 I don't know. Uh, Michael Moore tells it differently. Um, I'm, I'm going to have to read up a little further on that. Well, it's also a very interesting uh, point made about the fact that some people don't trust the government and feel that a businessman is better uh, to run the government than the government itself. And this would suggest, even if uh, we have our issues with the government, and I'm talking even before the 2016 election, it may be a case, may again, May, uh, mm. of the devil you know is the devil you don't know, because <clears throat> certainly things got worse when uh, these people who were businessmen only thought in business terms, we can save $15 million if we do this. And that was the bottom line for them, literally and figuratively. So under those circumstances, uh, that's how the disaster happened, because they were just interested in saving money and not concerned with the people involved. So so it, it's a sobering story. And uh, he sits... Yeah, he sits down in a in a an easy chair and doesn't move very much while he tells it. Um, and the words are very potent. Um, and um, it is uh, his essentially. You should pardon the expression. Eleven o'clock number, and it, it it's um, in the right place because um, the joking stops there. There's nothing funny about this story whatsoever. Right. But um, yeah, in a way, Michael, um, I hope it's not true. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, it'd be well. Weren't you know that's the thing, but it's very easy to believe that it is true. Yes, yes. <laughs> so uh, that's Michael Moore's show. It's uh, Planet the Belasco through August tenth. Um, I was talking with Matt on today on Broadway about it. I wonder if it's going to be recorded. I don't know if maybe that's the best way for him to get this type of a show out. Uh, rather than mm-hmm. him doing it around the country, as you guys were saying, he might not be able to reach the reddest of red areas in the heart mm. of America or in the heart of Staten Island. Uh, and uh, so perhaps – Yeah, uh, you know, maybe HBO with that type of thing. But the problem is, of course, uh, my guess is that much of the red population doesn't have HBO. That's my guess. But, uh, they, have, have, they have Game of Thrones. They love the game. They love the Game of Thrones. <laughs> Across funny the that just that just came up in a conversation I was having an hour ago. So there may be something to it. But let's be honest. The tragedy here is that um, I mean I think it's fair to say that the general problem is that 
they're they're not going to watch it even if it's on yeah yeah yeah, yeah you know i yeah. mean that that is isn't that's that true. the main difference between oh no i i don't i don't oh, think yeah. that anybody that is uh, you know, people that do not like Michael Moore are not going to tune into it, whether it's on HBO or YouTube. I yeah, think that yeah. there, it is. Yeah. I think preaching to the choir, as as you had mentioned at the very beginning, um, uh, and I think it's about rallying the base and bringing information. Yeah. We were also talking yeah. about um, Al Gore's new movie, uh, the follow up to uh, Inconvenient uh, Truth. Inconvenient Truth. Uh, and people that don't believe in global warming are still not going to go see the Al Gore movie. You sure. Know, they're, sure. You know, the Al Gore movie is about, you know, bringing, reestablishing facts. And, and I joked, but in, in essence, it is a little bit of therapy for people who do believe in these, these things. Well, so well. Um, uh, I'm, a big for, uh, I'm a big fan of Michael Moore, and I do think that sometimes he – overly dramatizes some of the facts in his movies and i'm interested to see this i'll be seeing the uh, seeing this uh this upcoming week and uh we'll talk about it a little more next great. week great great michael you were away last week and didn't get to weigh in on the public theater's production of a midsummer night's dream at the delacourt it's uh, actually closing today but before it closes a few hours from now tell us what you thought yeah, I just wanted to say that I was very disappointed. I had been led to believe that it was a wonderful production. And uh, my basic take on it is that although I think almost all of the elements, well, certainly all of the acting was wonderful, I, I had one exception to that. Um, actually, uh, Babish Patel, uh, his interpretation of Theseus was I I'm I'm do not know what he was going for, <laughs> um, and I and that started off the play, and so that kind of made me a little leery from the beginning. Uh, on the other hand, Deandre Aziza as Hippolyta I thought was wonderful, and a lot of uh, the other people who we would expect to be great were in fact, including Danny Burstein, Robert Joy who, um, gosh, I go really far back with Robert Joyce, seeing him on stage probably maybe 25 years ago the first time uh, or more. Um, and uh, all of the mechanicals, Jeff Hiller, uh, Petrina Murray, Austin Durant, Joe Tapper, and um, Annalie Ashford is one of our most talented people on the planet. But I have to say, I thought even she um, she was... Pushing. So did I, Michael. So did I. She was really, really pushing. And yeah. also I felt that um, other weird things like I thought some of the costumes were beautiful, but I thought some of them were absolutely ridiculous. And there didn't seem to be any flow to the production whatsoever. So I'm going to have to say that I think it really was really not well directed at all by Lear de Bessonet. And uh, it's too bad because I do think all of the the elements were there. Also, um, uh, Felicia Rashad, aside from looking unbelievably beautiful, <laughs> I think she um, she was really very good, and she had the right kind of um, attitude uh, that that was necessary for Titania. Um, Richard Poe um, was not how I quite how I envisioned Oberon either, but. But he's, you know, he's still a wonderful actor, and and I thought the young lovers were all just fine. So I I think that there were lots of wonderful elements that did not cohere, and I'm going to have to again 
say that it was the director's responsibility. Well, I pretty much think that your words will close this production today. Uh, they, they can't go on after today. That's oh, uh, <laughs> let me add uh, something before Peter weighs in. Um, I have heard from a fairly reliable source that they are doing studies to try to um, b- uh, increase the size of the Delacorte Theater. Oh, no, I haven't heard that. Wow. Yeah. So if um, so, if you never hear that again, forget I said it. But <laughs> but if but not, then you said it, you heard it. Then I said it first. <laughs> uh, if so, I hope it happens uh, during the fall uh, and even as much of the winter as they can use, because what that usually means is we miss a season um, because they have to rebuild and all that kind of stuff. So um, so well, I, I hope think, can... I would think that I assumed that that would naturally be the case because they don't normally have anything there, you know, between October. Yeah. yeah, but you know how construction takes forever. So um, so I yeah. hate the fact that we might miss uh, two shows uh, in the summer because of construction. So, uh, But I understand the need for it. I certainly do because uh, it's really become such an incredibly hot ticket because, of course, uh, the price is right. And um, I remember vividly um, in, in the late 70s when I started going that, indeed, if you went the first weekend, there were plenty of empty seats, mm-hmm. plenty. And that just doesn't happen anymore. Right. So uh, that is really exciting. But I, I think that they could do it very quickly. Uh, you look at, look at what they're doing over at the St. James. It look, you, have you guys seen I the know. pictures uh, from Jordan on social media They uh, of the empty St. James with no seats in it? It's really, no, I haven't seen that. Yeah, yeah but it, it really is something how it seems to be coming along on schedule. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm very impressed because this is, needless to say, an enormous job what they're doing. And um, and my friend Howard Rogat, uh, who was uh, the house manager there for years, said that it always was such a problem for shows that so many shows couldn't be accommodated there because of this issue of not having enough space back there. And I've been backstage at the St. James, and I, mm-hmm. it is tighter than uh, the other theaters. And so it's amazing to think. I think it's only 10 feet that they're doing, right? Is that correct? Something James? like that. They took ten away yeah. from the haze I'm, and added it to the. Uh, to think the ten feet can make such a difference. I mean, that's amazing to me. Ten feet doesn't seem like a, an amazing am- amount of space to me. So, um, so to think that that makes such a profound difference that it was worth doing this for ten feet is is pretty impressive to me. But yeah, it seems to be on schedule, and it looks like we're going to see that thirty million dollar musical uh, come March. Well, just think of it this way. Ten extra feet in an apartment in New York City will be increase the price about a million dollars. That's the truth. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, legitimately about a million dollars yeah. if you were to purchase yeah. the apartment. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so ten feet's right. a lot in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> Case on, a re- on a related note, have either of you heard um, that the rumor that there is to be a renovation of the Imperial after Natasha Pierre closes? I did. I, I don't know if it's true, but I did hear that mentioned, that it All wasn't right. the case of putting the seats back, that they were going to do something else too. And uh, it's always a possibility with the Schuberts who really you know, take care of their theaters much more than uh, certainly another organization we could mention. So, um, so really, it's, uh, I, I don't doubt it for a second. Well, you know, has there been an announcement for what show is going into the Imperial yet? No, um, uh, the rumor seems to be Mean Girls, but um, yeah. that's just rumor. Because Mean yeah, Girls that's... is starting a tryout on Halloween in uh, the National Theater in uh, Washington. So, 
Well, it would be. It would seem to be the perfect time to do it if you know now, since they have to put it back anyway uh, and and undo what was done for in terms of the ramps and all that for Natasha Pierre. So it seems like it would be the perfect time to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess it would depend upon the extent of a renovation that they were going to do. But I, if it's a major renovation, I don't, and I did hear the rumor that Mean Girls was going in there, um, that um, I don't know if they'll have time to do a major renovation. Other, You know, I think putting the ramps you know, restoring it to back to the way it was before Natasha Pierre, I think is a couple of weeks worth of work. It's not a huge deal. Right. 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 So, uh, all right. Next up, uh, Peter, you got over to 59 East 59 where there was the summer shorts festival (laughs) and, uh, you wanted to talk about it. Which one did you go to the A or the B? Both. Sure. Both. Once was okay. not enough. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, this series A and this series B. So uh, three one act plays in each and um, some by uh, writers that we don't. Well, at least I don't know. But um, and some by writers we do. Uh, Neil Labute had his ninth play um, in this festival and that was uh, Breakpoint. And it was about two tennis players. One, they've known each other since they went to tennis camp and um one has become a, an incredible superstar. He's won 19 Grand Slams, and he's tied with Federer for that, and um, he wants to win his 20th. And ironically enough, the friend that he's had since um, since he was 10 years old, who hasn't been that good in his career, has gotten lucky or skillful or whatever, but he's going to be his opponent in this match, which indeed would mean the 20th if indeed um, the superstar would win. And the superstar is worried that he won't win, and he's willing to bribe the other guy to um, throw the match. And what's wonderful about the play is you have to start wondering, has he done this before? Has he become a superstar because he's bribed people? Um, For one thing, he does indicate that he only makes a third of his fortune, and I mean a fortune, from playing tennis. The other comes from endorsements. And it does bring up this moral quandary about, is it worth it to pay people off to win sporting matches because you know you'll make it up with the endorsements you'll get? So it's a, a very interesting moral question, I think, and um, very, very potently played by um, two very, very fine actors. Um, John Garrett Greer is the uh, superstar, and Kaylin Durrell-Jones is the um, wannabe. And uh, the ending of the play has a nice little surprise to it, so um, justice may well be served, let's put it that way. So, uh, But frankly, this is in Series B, and it wasn't the play that made the biggest impression on me. The one that made the biggest impression on me was one called Wedding Bash. And Wedding Bash actually is by two writers, Lindsay Craft and Andrew Leeds, <clears throat> which leads me to believe they may be uh, people who had this experience because it's uh, about a couple who lives in Los Angeles and they had um, a wedding and the wedding was just spectacular, they think. The two people they have over for uh, dinner 
they're not a couple, it's one female friend, one male friend, uh, have very different opinions about this wedding. For one thing, the wedding was in Sedona, Arizona. And the reason the couple had it there is because they could save so much money by having it in Sedona, Arizona. Well, the problem is they saved money, but nobody else did because you had to get to Sedona, Arizona, and that meant a plane fare and it meant a hotel and all that, where if they had it in Los Angeles, it would have been cheaper for the other guests. So that's a nice quandary there. And um, I tell you, it's hilarious what happens in this play and I'm not going to tell you any more because I want uh, people to go and see it. I think you'll have a wonderful time. We don't get many potent comedies anymore uh, on stage and uh, this is certainly one of them. Um, In terms of series uh, A, what I really want to point out was that the day I was supposed to go um, I got a, a message from the press agent, Karen Greco, a fabulous press agent, saying, um, well, you still can come. However, in one of the plays, um, the person who uh, usually plays the lead is, um, uh, I think it was a TV series that they were shooting and it was running overtime. So we're going to have the understudy go on. And actually, she's going to be on book. So um, you can still come. But uh, if you want to change to another, you can do that, too, as well. You know, my plans were made. And so I said, no, no, I'll come. Here's the thing. I was just so impressed by this actress, Kelly McAndrew, who was giving a true performance. But more to the point, even though she had a book in her lap, somehow she made it look like she had been reading a book when the play started and now she was engaged in conversation. I don't even recall her turning a page. I'm sure she did, (laughs) but somehow she must have done it so surreptitiously. I didn't even notice. It was not until halfway through the play that I said, oh, wait a minute. That's right. This is the one who was was the understudy. But I totally forgot because she was so natural and so self-assured. It's a play about Ayn Rand. And um, I I don't know if you know very much about Ayn Rand, but um, she definitely was um, into free love. And um, even though she was married, she made it quite clear to her husband that she was going to start fooling around with Nathaniel Braden, uh, a, a younger man that she admired. And it really is a conversation about the night that they first posed this question. And Nathaniel um, is involved with the woman as well. So, um, so that's what the play's about. And frankly, while I found it a little dry and a little Wikipedia-ish in terms of um, the way it was structured – It became so fascinating to me because of the way this actress was making it seem so natural. And I have no idea how the original actress is in the role. But wow, um, if you if you go and Kelly McAndrews in by the time you go, I imagine she will not need the book at all. And again, uh, this probably won't happen. But I really want to say that this is uh, one of our most valuable performances of the season, given the nature of it. I mean, she must have been very well prepared. And it's wonderful when understudies understand that the job includes being prepared to go on at any given moment. And I love when they turn out to be so spectacular in what they're doing. So um, credit beyond belief to Kelly McAndrew. And I wish her a phenomenal career. She certainly deserves to be seen and to be praised and to have many more opportunities in her theatrical career. Um, So Kelly McAndrew, M-C-A-N-D-R-E-W, is that correct? That's right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Excellent. We'll put that in the show notes. Keep an eye out for her. Uh, I went back and looked at my notes because uh, it was bothering me about the Imperial and Mean Girls. Uh, oh, yeah, what did we learn? And I, 
And I did, I did think that I had heard that, but I went back and looked at my notes, and I heard Carousel is going into the ah, material. Ah, yeah. Oh, right. Of course. Yes. <clears throat> so, uh, if uh, if that's correct, and you um, heard it here the, first, if not, then forget I ever said it. And it also indicates that have more time to do the renovation because Carousel is coming in later. I, you know, I mean, again, Mean Girls doesn't have a theater, but the fact that they're running yeah. um, in Washington until, I think, December 4th you know, indicates they certainly want to come in after that. So uh, we'll see what happens. There's also been talk that's going to the Neil Simon, you know, which uh, makes sense, too, because Cats is closing at the end of the year. Well, I just looked up Kelly McAndrew, and uh, she has really some wonderful credits, including uh, it says Broadway Maggie the Cat in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, so I guess she was uh, the understudy. But Off-Broadway, Men men on Boats, Perfect Arrangement, um, Almost Maine, <laughs> mm-hmm. which we mentioned earlier, uh, Still Life, Greedy, The Cataract, Book of Days, uh, other New York credits, My California, Turvy Mouse, uh, and a lot of regional work. Um, and so I knew that her name was familiar. Uh, so that's why, I, I guess, if only from almost Maine. You know, it's so impressive when you, when you see an actor that you really don't know and um, the person turns out to be dynamic. I mean, I, I wrote a column once about a, a, an actor named Mark Minard, I think he pronounces his last name. But um, he was Lenny in Mice and Men at the um, New Jersey Shakespeare Theater, and um, he was so terrific. And then he wound up being one of the citizens of Rome in the Denzel Washington Julius Caesar. And watching him, you know, just be a citizen of Rome and doing the job he's supposed to do, but you realize, you know, how much more he's capable of because you've seen him be so wonderful in a role where he has a chance to shine. So, uh, yeah, I, I bet so many of these performers we, we don't even know and and are just standing in the background of, of shows on stage are, are, are much better than we will ever dream that uh, or have the opportunity to know. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad Kelly McAndrew at least had one night of a chance here to, to make an impression, at least on me. And apparently she is also on Orange is the New Black. Ah. Uh, <laughs> so good. So she's there. making a living. <laughs> it's the new uh, Law and Order. <laughs> it really it is. is. It yeah. really is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, in this week's news, um, we had the sad news that uh, Broadway legend Barbara Cook passed away. So, uh, Peter, do you have any remembrances of Barbara? Quite a few, in fact, because uh, we did a panel uh, about original cast albums uh, many moons ago, and um, Sheldon Harnick, J. David Sachs, and Tom Shepard, who uh, have produced original cast albums, were on the panel as well. But I remember her being so so sad about the fact that um, when she was doing Carrie, and she did indeed uh, originate the role of Margaret White and Carrie um, in London, and then decided the show was not for her. But um, she talked about the fact that um, they assured her that the work tapes that they were doing while they were rehearsing would never get out. And of mm. course, they're in plenty of apartments that I've been in. So, um, <laughs> so she, uh, she, I, I remember that the way she told the story was so poignant. Um, and uh, so I remember that. The other thing was I remember back in the '70s when I was still living in Boston, she was doing a concert uh, in Cambridge, and um, the uh, manager of the Harvard Coop, that's short for cooperative uh, that had a fabulous records 
protection uh, for cast albums because he was a fan and he made sure he got everything, including British imports, um, said, I wonder if I can get her to appear here to do a record signing of her Carnegie Hall album because that's essentially what she was going to be doing. And she was so cooperative and it was so wonderful to see her interact with the public who came, especially these people who brought in every cast album. There was the Gay Life. There was the Grass Harp. There was, you know, all the obscure ones bringing in and she signed everyone happily. And I, uh, as, as somebody who has a great, great fondness for the grass harp um it was so wonderful to see her when that album came up in the pile that she patted it lovingly and said i love this show you know and it was it, it meant a lot to me but she was so good with the public there um i guess my funniest story involving barbara cook was when she was in little murders now she didn't often do um straight plays but she did take over for Sandy Dennis in Any Wednesday and, in fact, recorded a song um, called Any Wednesday, which they simply put out as a promotional record on the Any Wednesday label. Well, try getting that in a record store. Um, yes, I'd like Any Wednesday. Yeah. Uh, what label is it on? Any Wednesday? I mean, it was like Abbott and Costello. I mean, I never got the record. It has since been released on various albums. But anyway, Little Murder. Uh, Little Murders was a play by Jules Pfeiffer, and it did not belong on Broadway at all. It was literally about um, this young woman who was engaged to Elliot Gould um, uh, and bringing him home to meet the family and uh, things weren't working out very well because what he did for a living was um, photograph let's be as elegant as we can here bowel movements that was the <laughs> subject that he liked well you can imagine how parents react to a guy who does this for a living also when they're going to get married he insists that they're um, not be the mention of the word God in the ceremony. So it's very hard to find somebody who could marry them who wouldn't mention God. And when the guy played by Paul De Benedict, I believe, um, married them uh, in, in the speech before he actually gets to the vows, he actually says to the congregation, it pains me to tell you of the 200 people, uh, couples that I've married, only six are still together. I mean, imagine saying this at a wedding. So this is a really wild and woolly show. Anyway, it's a three-act play. And at the end of the second act, a car backfires and Barbara Cook faints. And there I am in a Saturday matinee sitting next to two matinee ladies, older women. And um, one of the women says, my God, they shot her. And the other woman says, my God, she's dead. And it was all I could do to contain myself in my 20-year-old wisdom at a time when, of course, when I knew everything. <laughs> now, of co now, of course, I know nothing. But um, to say them. For God's sakes, why do you even bother coming to the theater? Do you really think, do you think that there's any possibility that a show starring Barbara Cook would kill her off at the end of the second act? There's still an act to go. Why do you people come to the theater? Why, why? Stay home when you don't understand what's going on. So the third act began with Barbara Cook's funeral in the shows because she had been shot and killed at the end of the second act. So uh, it was a sobering moment for me. Uh, so Barbara Cook taught me a lesson uh, about you better keep to yourself and don't think you know everything. So I owe her that. Um, but uh, I know these are the stories that uh, we should have more tributes. I have to say. The only time I saw her in a Broadway musical was The Grass Harp. Yes, I did see her in concert, but I just came in too late for her career. Um, yeah, I was paying attention when She Loves Me happened. But unfortunately, uh, I wasn't able to get to New York that year, and uh, it didn't try out in Boston. So, um, And something more, her 1964 musical, that didn't last a long time at all, uh, didn't try out in Boston either. So I, di I didn't have...
have much luck. And Music Man and Candide uh, predated my interest in the theater. So, um, so I'm very sorry to say that that was the only musical I saw her do. But um, it's it's really something. I mean, I I know the F. Scott Fitzgerald's famous line about there are no second acts in American life doesn't what people think it means. He, he really meant that um, because in his era, there were three-act plays, and what he meant was time goes by so quickly. You, you start out young and suddenly you're old. That's what he meant when there is no second act in, uh, in lives. But, um, but if we take it the way most people think that it's meant, that uh, you, you, you have a, one career and that's the end of it, um, certainly that wasn't the case for Barbara Cook, who for much of the populace is best known as a concert artist and a consummate singer than uh, a Broadway performer. Michael, I saw a great photograph of you and Barbara on Facebook. Tell yeah. us about that. Well, that was two years ago. It, it was taken at the National Arts Club um, for the uh, Encompass Opera Theater. They honor uh, wonderful people every year. And I, I think that year was was actually Charles Strauss. Uh, but they had honored Sheldon Harnick uh, the previous year. And, and uh, so Barbara was there. And that was the last time I saw her. And uh, she was already in a wheelchair, but I got to take my photo with her. She, um, uh, uh, Peter, that one musical you saw her in was one more than I did. Mm. You know, I mean, mm. unless you count Sondheim on Sondheim, which I yeah I, yeah a music, but yeah um, sure. Uh, and I, you know, I was trying to think of something to say about her that hasn't already been said. Yeah, it's uh, hard, I, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I think that um, her the simplicity of her approach uh was one of her hallmarks and also honesty honesty in performance and also honesty in interviews i i said that actually in something i posted about her on facebook to me she was always very honest in interviews about herself and about others she wouldn't be nasty but she would say what she felt if she loved something she would say it and if she didn't she would say it also i remember she uh without naming anyone she said something to the effect of how um for example glitter and be gay she felt when other people performed it sometimes that they would purposely really try very very hard to make it funny and therefore it was less funny than if you just mm. sang it and yeah. as if you were unaware of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, which is what she did. Uh, so I, I thought that was a very good point. Uh, on the other hand, I, I recall some years ago, Adam Lambert, um, mm -hmm. you know, who started out in, in theater and then he suddenly became this pop star. Uh, but then somewhere, somehow, uh, a recording um, of him singing Come to Me, Bend to Me from Brigadoon surfaced. Uh, somewhere and she actually it was such a beautiful recording that she sent it around to everyone that she knew saying listen to this recording uh, she could not it, could not have praised it more highly and um, I remember seeing her at Avery Fisher in a concert not long after that and and you know I, I always I don't want to just gosh I want to say something so I, I, I said thank you for for sending out that beautiful performance of Adam Lambert. And she said, oh, wasn't that just absolutely gorgeous? And I said, yeah. So she was uh, in, tremendously supportive of so many younger artists. Audra McDonald, uh, Kelly O'Hara, these people all worship her. Um, 
Well, I, that brings I, up a, a, another point, too. Um, it, it, you reminded me of the fact that uh, when uh, Fantasia um, Barino went into Color Purple, uh, she actually called and said, um, look, I see you're giving a Theatre World Award to her. May I give it to her? Because I was just so impressed by her performance, mm-hmm. and I want people to know how much I was impressed by her performance. So I'd like to tell the audience that. So uh, what a terrific thing. I mean, to volunteer to do that, uh, she knew that she could do it because she won a Theatre World Award. Ironically enough, you're supposed to win for your Broadway debut. She had already done uh, Flahooli and two city centre shows by the time she did Plain and Fancy, for which she won the award. Daniel Blum was running the awards then, and I'm sure his feeling was better late than never. I mean, we have to award this woman something, even though um, <laughs> I'm bending the rules here. He occasionally bent the rules, and um, and this was one of the exceptions because she was exceptional. But I just thought it was wonderful that she volunteered to give that award, that she really wanted to uh, give her uh, imprimatur. Uh, some people pronounce that word differently, so I apologize for those of you who do. But um, in Catholic schools, that's the way we're taught to say it. So anyway, um, so it really, it was, it was uh, very wonderful of her to do that. I can't recall anybody else calling up and say, please, I must give the award to so-and-so. So um, I'm very grateful that she did it. Yes, and I just recently read a, a quote uh, that Barbara's quote on that performance was, it was the most thrilling performance she had ever seen in her life. Oh. Fantasia, which if that's oh. not, you know, something yeah, to right. treasure. Uh, and one final thing, uh, there's a restaurant uh, that I – frequent that is also frequented by Lilius White and she came in the other night while I was there and she had just posted something on Facebook about Barbara and I said I told her how lovely it was what she had said and and Lilius said well Barbara was always so so kind to me and everyone and and she also Lilius said I'm so glad I got to see Barbara at different stages of her career because I guess she had seen her first way back in the day and then she saw I suppose maybe what was if not her last one of her last performances just last year was it that she was singing again in a wheelchair and I think it was at Feinstein's 54 Below Um, so and I could totally relate to that because I uh, I mean I don't go that far back with Barbara but still quite a few years and she really did have <laughs> to, to allude to Peter's comment earlier. She had, I don't know. Um, well, I guess it was two acts in the sense of Broadway and then concert and cabaret, but it it was over such a long period. And you know what else? One final thing. Just yesterday, I've been listening to a lot of her lately, including, mm-hmm. uh, she loves me and, mm-hmm. uh, and Candide. And although, of course, her voice changed somewhat, and of course, she lost the highest notes. Basically, it remained the same for like 50, 50 or 60 years. Mm-hmm. There was that same mm-hmm. pure, beautiful soprano-ish tone to it. And I, don't, I can't think of one other person, especially sopranos, uh, People, women who sing in uh, lower registers are, are different, and, and men's voices are also different. But sopranos, for very specific ph- physiological reasons, they don't, they do not tend to keep their voices uh, into into their their seventies and eighties. So she was extraordinary in in every respect, and that one included. Mm-hmm. They say uh, use it or lose it, and she was always mm-hmm. busy. 
She was mm. always around and always doing something, so that's great. Uh, in other news, we just have a, a handful of uh, things that I, I thought I'd get a couple of sentences out of both both you about. Have you stayed up with this uh, controversy about the San Francisco theater editing the uh, last days of Judas mm-hmm. Iscariot? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Peter, as a as a playwright. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. When I fill out my income tax forms, I do not put that down as my occupation. But anyway. <laughs> but, uh, well, no, did I, you see it, Judas when it was here? No. No, for some reason I missed it. Um, so I have no knowledge of this play whatsoever, I'm sorry to say. Uh, you can't see them all, and somehow that one slipped yeah. through my fingers. Um, Michael, did you? I think it's been done here more than once, and I still didn't see it. You too. Uh, wow. I, I've I've seen some of the other ones. Uh, 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 Jesus Hobby A Train and uh, Oh yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, uh, well, I can't think of it. Den of Thieves. I think that's his. Uh, very funny comedy. Our Lady of what is it? Our Lady yeah. of yeah. What is it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess we're really deficient on this playwright. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah. Um, Stephen Adley Gargas uh, uh, is the yeah, playwright. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and let's see. We'll yeah. Den of Thieves. Uh, Does that ring about? Our Lady let's of 121st see. Street. Uh, the uh, motherfucker with the hat. Uh, yes. Yes. Of course. Uh, and then between Riverside and Crazy, which I loved, at second stage. Uh, that, that's the one with all the Pulitzer. The uh, woman, I think so. Let's see, Pulitzer. Um, but uh, no, anyway, yeah, Riverside and Crazy won the 2015 to, Pulitzer. Yeah, yeah, I thought so, and I missed that too. I, I so you did. Um, wow. it, it, there are just some people you miss, and uh, you know, even though I go to the theater literally 350 times a year, um, you can't see them all. So, uh, in terms of this, though, I mean, uh, it's just so hard. I mean, I feel so bad for theater companies that really have to toe the line. They all do. I mean, uh, you just have to do it the way that, that the playwrights want you to do it, and that's all there is to it. I mean, that's the bottom line of all this, and. Um, I I would imagine that the number of times that people fool around with scripts, uh, not just they have to do a update a period reference. Like if you do come blow your horn, if you want to make it set now, um, you can't use the Untouchables as a TV series that's on is because when it, the play was done, that's what it is. I'm not just talking about updating in that way, but I mean I imagine that this goes on so much more than we can ever believe. But um, I think what happens now more is that uh, people don't get away with it because people who don't get cast in the show uh, squeal on them. And uh, but <laughs> you know, I, 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 it's just such a tricky thing. But um, I have to take the hard line on this that you have to do the script the way it's it's actually written, and that's all there is to it. In this case, uh, it seems to me that it wouldn't have become an issue if they hadn't cut so much of it, because uh, if they hadn't cut so much of it. Uh, it might not have been noticed in the first place, yeah. but apparently they didn't. They cut like an hour. They cut yeah. more than more than an hour out of it, and they put a, a notice in the in the playbill that said that this play not might this play may not be what the author intended his original vision. <laughs> they wrote yeah, that, I, I, and, yeah, right. and then they got a cease and desist, and they and the cease and desist Stephen Adligurgis. Uh, Asked them to put a note into the program for subsequent performances that said that this is not what I intended. What what you're about to see is not what I intended. But 
then the theater company and the director played with his words and twisted his words. <laughs> uh, and so at that point, they said, listen, you, you can't do this show then. Uh, you yeah. know, they gave they gave this director and theater company ample opportunity to a lot of leeway, make, make yes. this make this work. And yeah. uh, it's, uh, it's such a shame. So, uh, well, it so reminds weird. me of the hands on the hard body incident too. That the, the was in Texas. Um, uh, as Amanda Green said to me, you know, I paid to go down there, you know, and, and to go down there and see that uh, things weren't as as I had written them, and then afterwards have the guy come up to me and say, "It's better, isn't it?" You know, I mean, all that should have been done in advance. You know, so it's 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 so hard. You know, I mean, uh, and and yet, you know, I mean, I, if I were a director, I would love to tackle. The Merchant of Venice, and after the quality of Mercy speech, I would have Shakespeare, uh, Sh- Shylock say, um, uh, not say anything, but just nod his head okay. That that um, I would really like to see that happen, as opposed to the terrible things that happened to Shylock. I would like to see him come around, and also that way the, the, the Gentiles wouldn't do the terrible, terrible, terrible things that uh, happened to Shylock because two wrongs don't make a right. So I understand the inclination, but of course, uh, Shakespeare wouldn't uh, object to what I was doing because he's long gone. But, you know, to do it with a live playwright is really crazy. It just yeah. is. I mean, and uh, um, the fact that these things are being made public are, are really very good because they should be sobering experiences to the people who are putting on shows because after all, what we're talking about here is shows that get shut down, which do nobody any good. And it's um, such a disappointment. I remember a young man years ago um, saying, I want you to come to see my production of The Stepford Wives. And I said, um, oh, gee, my God, you know, I know Ira Levin. That's wonderful. He gave you the rights. Oh, he didn't give me the rights. Nobody's going to come after me. <laughs> Somebody came after him. Somebody came. He couldn't do it. And he called me in tears saying, well, since you know why we're 11, can't you put in a good word for me? And I, and I said, no, no, I cannot, because I told you this was wrong that you were doing. So um, this is just, uh, to use that old cliche, the tip of the iceberg. I mean, I, who knows what's going on out there? And yet when you think of it, you know, this is, uh, again, Shakespeare uh, is a different situation. But we always hear about the Yiddish theater on Second Avenue taking tremendous liberties with Shakespeare. You know, mm. the Romeo and Juliet lived happily ever after and all that kind of business. Mm. So, so. So um, as long as there are plays and there's as long as there are uh, directors, including, uh, you know, in I, I Levin reference again in Death Trap, you may recall that uh, after Sidney Bruhl reads um, Clifford's play and is so impressed by it, he says, even a gifted director couldn't ruin it. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you know, and we talk about underlining things too much in Midsummer Night's Dream. The way John would deliver that line, and I saw uh, Stacy Keach and John. Um, um, oh wow! Um, isn't this something I can't think of his name at the moment? But anyway, John Collum. Excuse me. Oh, yes. I apologize, John. I saw all three of them do uh, the part, and nobody put quotation marks around the word "gifted." You know, they let it be. Even a gifted director couldn't uh, ruin <laughs> it. So, you know, it, 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 and that's that, that's part and parcel of what directors want to do uh, and that that's happening more and more and more and more so um uh, well well, let me tell this story i remember so vividly um when bill guile was doing a class act at um 
Rutgers in Newark. And um, I like class act, so I wanted to go see it. And he called me and said, uh, Liz, uh, uh, Liz uh, we, uh, 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 we made a few changes. So I want you to be aware of that. You know, so he said, because, you know, we got to give kids a chance to perform. So in the sequence where they're in the BMI workshop, we added new songs, um, other songs by Ed Kleban, you know, so, um, well, it made the show that much longer. That they, but all right, fine. I understood what he was doing. However, however, in the second act, he added a sequence involving the Tony Awards. And the whole point was that here's Chorus Line nominated for all these awards, and he has people sweating out whether or not they're going to win these awards. Now, believe me, there was no doubt that Chorus Line was going to win all these awards. But there he is having sweating out. The nominees for best score are, you know, uh, Kander and Ebb for Chicago, Stephen Sondheim for Pacific Overtures, um, Marvin Hamlish and Ed Kleban for, of course, and they're sweating. They're really worried, you know, and I mean, everybody knows. But here's the thing. All right. The nominees for best director of a musical are Bob Fosse for Chicago, um, Michael Bennett for A Chorus Line, Harold Prince for Pacific Overtures, Bill Guile for Very Good Eddie. He put in his own name in the show to mm. remind people that he was nominated for a Tony oh, Award. Oh and that was God. the whole reason for that sequence, you know. Oh. So um, that is to me is the quintessential example of fooling around because uh, he had to let us know that even though he was now teaching at Rutgers, there was a time when he was directing on Broadway and uh, got a Tony nomination. Oh, so. Well, it's painful. <laughs> on a related note, and James, if you want to cut this out afterward, that's fine. But I... <laughs> remember that very well because I was there some years ago there was a production of uh, Sondheim's company at the Barrington stage and for whatever reason the director Julianne Boyd decided to cut the song Someone Is Waiting so we saw the show without the song and a bunch of us were like what is that all about (laughs) (laughs) and then I don't know who exactly, but someone contacted the, uh, you know, the the Sondheim's office or the licensing organization. And soon enough, a cease and desist uh, letter was received, uh, you know, saying uh, basically put the song back in or close the show. And so it went back in the next night. And um, the fellow who was playing Bobby, Robert Bartley, had to read the lyrics uh, on a clipboard. Uh because he yeah. hadn't learned the song well enough sure, to sing it. Sure, sure. Uh, but but the but the um <laughs> but the follow up to that is now the same company and the same director do uh, the same theater company and the same director are doing company again with Aaron Tveit and uh they released a rehearsal video as a promo and the first clip in the video <laughs> Someone is waiting. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> you bet it is. <laughs> wow. See, they uh, learned. Well, cutting someone is waiting is as stupid as cutting chrysanthemum tea from Pacific Overtures. Anyway, go on. The production I saw of Promises, Promises that cut half as big as life. Wow. Such... I mean, if the last thing you cut is the first song that, that, the, lead, that the central character sings. you know, And establishes who he is. Yeah, exactly. so wonderfully. You know, so... Mm. That whole, oh, what a beautiful morning is really not important. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, there's a couple of news items I want to mention just to put uh, put it on everybody's radar screen. Uh, and if uh, Michael and Peter, if you have anything to say about this, jump in. Uh, uh, C. Martin's Media Shower announced a casting of Amy Schumer, Laura Benanti, Keegan-Michael Key, uh, 
this is seeming to be a uh, star-studded type of uh, thing hitting all sorts of different groups that they are going to be able to market to, the Amy Schumer fans and the Keegan-Michael Key fans and the Steve Martin fans. Uh, I thought it was going to – it's very very interesting to bring mm. uh, so many different segments into such a small show. I mean, I think there's only four characters in the show. I think. I'm not sure. Um of course, we alluded to a Great Comet uh, announced a closing date, uh, which is a fallout of that scandal that we talked about a few weeks back. Um, and uh, Bruce Springsteen officially is coming to Broadway in the fall at the Walter Kerr. Uh, and, and they've uh, released fan- some more some more information about that in a press release that, uh, uh, if I recall, he's he said it's going to be just him. Uh, yeah, right. and and I think he said just him and a guitar and yeah. and he's going to do a lot of talking. There's not going to be a band and it's going to be a, a, apparently a very intimate evening, which sounds yeah. wonderful to me. And they've also uh, – you kind of have to sign up for this free Bruce Springsteen fan club to uh, become eligible to buy tickets. Yes. Uh, so they're going to really try to uh, address some of the scalping issues, although – if you go on to uh, various reseller websites right now, even though not one ticket has been sold yet, you can buy tickets to the Bruce Springsteen show. <laughs> Isn't that something? Wow. So uh, these. Uh, Do you wow. know the prices uh, that they were asking? They're, I know. They're I, saw, I saw fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars. Yeah, because I know eight fifty is um, is part of the package here. Um, that that's going to be a ticket price, and um, so I was wondering exactly how much of a markup the uh, StubHubby type things would be doing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, we also got the news that Bandstand announced their closing date uh, for September, and that uh, Jersey Boy is coming back to New World <laughs> Stages uh, after their. Um, 11-month absence from Broadway? I, I forget how long they've been actually it was, gone. It was January. It was January, so sure. Yeah. it's. Uh, <laughs> uh, of course, one has to wonder um, if the fate will be the same as the fate that Rent had when Rent came back. And it certainly Rent took a longer time to come back than uh, 11 months. But – um, will indeed uh, there be enough of an audience? I, I suspect there will be because it's a small house. And um, we're talking so. about it being a small house, and they're going to slim back the right. the, yeah. the cast a little bit. I was wondering, uh, with talking with Matt on today on Broadway, if perhaps in a smaller house with all those great tight harmonies, if they would forego some. Uh, amplification. Wow, that's interesting. And yeah, because that would give a whole different. I mean, I I love Jersey. It's a very good idea. Me too. Me too. I'd love to go back and see it in a smaller thing, and to be closer to them, and with no amplification. I think that might be really good. What a great idea. Well, I mean, well, I think it it might hopefully be much less amplification, but I I don't imagine those theaters. No, we're we're, we're talking wish lists rather than uh, predictions. Okay, uh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Believe me, I mean, we don't expect it, but uh, wouldn't it be nice? I don't know which. uh, Oh, uh, that reminds me of something, Um, and and that is, you know, wouldn't it be nice? Started me. it reminds me of the 11 o'clock number in Inner City, a 1971 musical that I'm crazy about. And it's going to be done in Studio 54 below uh, the Feinstein's uh, venue um, this Thursday night. 
at 7 and 9.30. I don't know uh, how tickets are going or if you can get in. But Inner City is a magnificent rock musical, uh, mm-hmm. one of my all-time favorites. And um, uh, I'll tell you in advance in case you're going, because the show doesn't make this quite clear, but it's actually based on a book called Inner City Mother Goose. And what Eve Merriam did was take very famous nursery rhymes and apply them to New York in 1971, when things were rather dire, um, especially around Times Square. So um, it's a terrific rock musical, and I think it has one of the great showstoppers of all time, of all time, and I've heard a lot of songs, um, in which a prostitute rationalizes why she does what she does and why she feels that you're no better than she is. Uh, I guarantee you that uh, this song will will tear down the house. And ironically enough, there are two sequels to it in which a pickpocket tells his side of the story and a drug dealer tells his, his side of the story. Same melody, similar lyrics, not um, directly the same lyrics because they're a different thing. In the original cast album, they only included the hooker and the drug pusher. Um, so I'm hoping we get to hear the pickpocket do his song on uh, Thursday night. But um, here's another example of uh, Feinstein Studio 54 and the wonderful management there. Miss um, uh, um, Tepper doing such a good job in um, getting this, uh, bringing original cast albums to life. So I really think. Th- this is going to be a very good one. So I am definitely going to be there at 9.30 uh, to see Inner City, which I did see originally on Broadway. Ironically enough, Christmas week, I saw it, and there was so little interest in this show. Hmm. The tickets were $3. Mm. Wow. So, All right. So I think that's a good place to wrap up for this week. Before we get to trivia, I want to let everybody know that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in iTunes or Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is the Stitcher app, which is an application for your iPhone or your Android device and get us uh, streamed to you. iHeartRadio plays us, uh, Google Play, um, Tune in radio anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can find us. And Broadway World plays us at Wednesdays at noon, Thursdays at 7 p.m., and Saturdays at 2 p.m. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and me, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, can be found at Broadway Radio. So, Peter, what is the answer to last week's trivia? Well, nobody got it, and I didn't expect anybody to because it was murderously hard. But I, I, <laughs> I, I, I was, um, I was doing, um, I was preparing to do an article on um, the apartment, um, the movie that came out in 1960, and uh, because there's a line in it in which. Um, the boss, Mr. Sheldrake, um, has uh, theater tickets to um, to a show, and uh, he's giving them to C.C. Baxter because he's going to meet his girlfriend. Um, and um, so he gives him the tickets, and, and C.C. Baxter says, what are they for? And um, he says, the Music Man, what else? You know, and uh, indicating the Music Man was such a big hit at that time, everybody wanted to see it. So I decided I was going to do a column saying, uh, excuse me, there could have been a lot of other good shows that you could have <laughs> seen, you know, like West Side Story. And, you know, well, anyway, so in doing that, I, I found out that in the apartment that uh, the it's the first Oscar winning movie to mention an Oscar winning movie and the Oscar winning movie it mentions is Grand Hotel. So my question was, what are the two Oscar winning movies? Um, and then what were the musicals made from them? One of them kept the title. One of them did not. And of course the apartment became promises, promises and Grand Hotel became Grand Hotel. 
So, uh, so that was the answer to that impossible question. And if it weren't for IMDb teaching me that this was the first Oscar-winning movie to mention an Oscar-winning movie, I, I wouldn't have done the question and driven everybody to distraction. So I'm going to do a much easier one this week. A lot of theaters are named after people. And um, usually that happens after they die. Usually. But um, can you tell me the name of a theater that was named for a person during his lifetime that indeed was torn down while he was very much still alive? That's a reasonably uh, easy question. So I'll look forward to getting answers from you and we'll talk about uh, who got it next week. All right. So if you have an answer to that, uh, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 <laughs>